In today's episode of 750 Mills, how you can use art to fight pollution, literally. Then we look at robotic exoskeletons that can help paralyzed people walk again. Plus some extra bits of good health-related news from Africa and the United Kingdom. That along with today's secret link, the feel-good featured track from a living legend, and some food for thought from an author on why it's important to follow Nike's advice to just do it. That's all coming at you right now. This episode is brought to you by Love Good Fats. Tasty treats don't need to be unhealthy. Love Good Fats gives you delicious, low-sugar, low-carb protein bars and shakes that are keto-friendly using responsibly sourced ingredients, making it just plain better for your health and the environment. Visit www.lovegoodfats.com and make sure to use the coupon code 750ML4 when you decide to treat yourself to something good. Hey everyone, welcome to 750 Mills, the show that highlights the good stuff in the world today and points you to news, music, and all manner of genuinely useful, or at the very least, mildly interesting things. It's all meant to help you start off your day or your week right. Welcome to the show folks, my name is Andre, I'm glad to have you back with me. Hope you got a nice hot drink with you today like a fresh cup of coffee because we are going to talk about the interesting technology behind the pollution fighting paint that artists and some city governments around the world have been using to try and reduce the amount of harmful chemicals floating around in the air. But is it really that simple? We'll take a look. Plus we'll talk about how a robotic exoskeleton Basically, a mind-controlled external frame that you wear like a suit has helped one paralyzed man walk again. If they ask you to, would you say yes to having wires attached to your brain if it meant you could do something that you could no longer do, but with the assistance of machines that you can wear? Well, wait till you hear this one. You've got those stories coming up along with a couple of good bits of news from around the world, including something that I'm pretty sure will find useful. Or if not you, at least maybe your granny would. You'll know what I mean when you hear it. And that is coming up right now. Hey everyone, I hope you're having a nice morning, noon, or night, wherever you are in the world, and whenever you might be listening to this episode. And just to start things off, we've got some good news from Africa and from the United Kingdom. First off, what do you know about the disease called polio, and how worried should you be about it? Well, polio, the full name being poliomyelitis, is a virus that spreads from person to person, usually through contaminated water, and it's a disease that can lead to paralysis by attacking the nervous system. It mainly affects children under 5 years of age. Symptoms of the disease can include fever, fatigue, headache, vomiting, stiffness of the neck, and pains in the limbs. It invades the nervous system and can cause total paralysis in a matter of hours. 1 in 200 infections leads to irreversible paralysis and among those paralyzed, 5-10% to of people die when the muscles their body uses for breathing stop working. In many cases, victims of polio have visibly deformed limbs. So is this a little worrying? There's no cure for the disease which has existed for thousands of years, even being depicted in ancient art. And there's one example including an ancient Egyptian stone carving and this one is dated as being sometime from about 1403 down to 1365 BC, as over 3,000 years old. 
I'm looking at a photo of it right now, and it's this ancient Egyptian dude holding what looks like a cocktail glass in one hand and a long walking stick in the other. He's got one good leg and another one that looks like it's just been desiccated. I'll put that one in the episode's show notes so you can see it if you want to as well. Polio was first recognized as a condition by English physician Michael Underwood in 1789 and subsequently identified as a virus by Austrian immunologist Karl Landsteiner in 1908. Thankfully, children who are vaccinated for polio are protected for life. The first vaccine was developed in 1952 by American virologist Jonas Salk. Soon after, an oral vaccine was developed by Polish-American medical researcher Albert Sabin in 1961. And that's now the world standard for treating it. The good news in all of this, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is that just a few days ago, this month of August, Africa has been declared free of wild polio. The BBC reports that Nigeria is the last African country to be declared free from wild polio, having accounted for more than half of all global cases less than a decade ago. Well, they continue saying that the vaccination campaign in Nigeria involved a huge effort to reach remote and dangerous places under threat from militant violence, and some health workers were even killed in the process. Two out of three strains of wild polio virus have been eradicated worldwide. Africa has been declared free of the last remaining strain of wild polio virus. More than 95% of Africa's population has now been immunized. This was one of the conditions that the Africa Regional Certification Commission set before declaring the continent free from wild polio. So, how did Africa do it? Well, in 1996, polio virus paralyzed more than 75,000 children across the continent. Every country was affected. That same year, Nelson Mandela launched the Kick Polio Out of Africa program, mobilizing millions of health workers who went village to village to hand-deliver vaccines. So what, what was the result of that? Well, since 1996, billions of oral polio vaccines have been provided, averting an estimated 1.8 million cases of wild polio virus. So thanks to huge efforts from everybody involved, there's now a lot less suffering in Africa, having officially eliminated the wild polio virus just this month. I'll put a link to the BBC report in the show notes because there's an interesting section in there that details the challenges that help workers and scientists face in getting things done in terms of helping people, challenges spanning the gamut from getting to remote communities to working through conflict zones, and even conspiracy theories. There's some pretty interesting bits there, so if you want to know more, make sure you check out the link later. Now, what can you do if you have a bacterial infection, but you find that antibiotics are becoming less and less effective? This is a problem that's becoming quite widespread across the world because apparently it's easy enough for antibiotics to be misused and for that to have such a significant impact that's recognized by health organizations globally is saying something. The World Health Organization states that antibiotic resistance is one of the biggest threats to global health, food security, and development today, and that it can affect anyone of any age in any country. Antibiotic resistance leads to longer hospital stays, of course higher medical costs, and increased mortality. A growing number of infections such as pneumonia, tuberculosis, gonorrhea, and salmonellosis, uh, hard to pronounce that one, are becoming harder to treat as the antibiotics used to treat them become less effective. 
They say that in places in the world where antibiotics can be bought for human or animal use without a prescription, the emergence and spread of resistance is worse. Well, similarly, in countries without standard treatment guidelines, antibiotics are often overprescribed by health workers and veterinarians and are overused by the public. So it's not just regular people making these mistakes, but even trained health workers. The WHO makes some detailed recommendations on how to fight antibiotic resistance in terms of what policies should be enacted and enforced, as well as some industry-specific recommendations, but I'll just leave the link for you to check it out. So, if antibiotic resistance is on the rise and the medicines that we need to treat bacterial infections are becoming less and less effective, what can we do? Well, there's some good news on that front. A recent study came out of the United Kingdom which looked at the effectiveness of honey for symptomatic relief in upper respiratory tract infections. That's the name of the study published in the BMJ's Evidence-Based Medicine Journal. Here's the too-long-didn't-read non-scientific conclusion. It works. The researchers from Oxford University pointed out that antibiotic overprescription for upper respiratory tract infections, or URTIs for short, in primary care makes antimicrobial resistance worse overall and that there's a need for effective alternatives to just prescribing antibiotics. Honey is commonly seen as a remedy for URTIs and they say that there is emerging evidence for its use. They acknowledge that honey has antimicrobial properties, and guidelines recommended honey for acute cough in children. An example of the guidelines they may be referring to is that if you look for recommendations how to treat a cough, the UK's National Health Service, or the NHS, recommends trying to use a hot lemon and honey drink, and they even give you the steps on how to make it, among other things that they suggest you try. The NHS themselves also provide some information on studies that show the antimicrobial benefits of honey, including one report that says the following. The world desperately needs new antibiotics to counter the growing threat of bacteria developing resistance to drug treatment. A new study has found that 13 bacteria strains living in honeybee stomachs can reduce the growth of drug-resistant bacteria, such as MRSA, in the laboratory. So there's definitely a growing amount of interest and evidence it looks like it's a worthwhile thing to investigate. Anyway, back to the Oxford study. In their assessment, they referred to 14 other studies, and they found that honey improved combined symptom score, cough frequency, and cough severity. Their conclusion was this. Honey was superior to usual care for the improvement of symptoms of upper respiratory tract infections. It provides a widely available and cheap alternative to antibiotics. Honey could help efforts to slow the spread of antimicrobial resistance, but further high-quality placebo-controlled trials are needed. The Oxford researchers looked at a lot of evidence and they found reasonable bases to believe that honey can be an effective alternative for this specific situation, at the same time stating that more research is needed. And to that, I say yes, please. More information, more data is always a good thing, so we can make better decisions when it comes to stuff that matters. We know that art enriches societies and art gives color to human life in more ways than one, but can you use art to fight pollution? Literally. Well, Polish artists Maciek Polak and Dawid Rajski, and I really apologize if I pronounce your name wrong, I probably have, 
Design a mural that has been painted on one side of a building in Warsaw, Poland, which faces a popular metro stop in the capital city, executed by a local artist hub called Good Looking Studio. The mural itself is a vertically oriented, building-sized image of pastel-colored geometric shapes that represent city buildings surrounding cheerful-looking, gigantic, and cartoonish daisies that tower above the buildings and are set against a black backdrop. What's unique about the mural is the paint that was used to create it. So they used photocatalytic paint with titanium dioxide. Here's what the report says about it. Photocatalytic paint with titanium dioxide attracts airborne pollutants before converting them into harmless nitrates through a chemical process involving sunlight. This process reportedly purifies the surrounding air with an effect equal to 720 trees. That's in one city, just for the mural in Warsaw. This one mural is a part of a global campaign by Converse called City Forests, which is designed to lift up the spirits of people and help improve the environment in some way, all amidst the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic that we're all going through. So this is the second mural of the campaign to be finished, and the first one was completed in Bangkok, Thailand. Other cities where murals will be installed include Belgrade, Lima, Sydney, Jakarta, Manila, which is my hometown by the way, Sao Paulo, Santiago, Johannesburg, Melbourne, Bogota, and Panama City. The goal is this. By the time all the murals in every city is finished, they should have the pollution-reducing effect of about 3,000 trees all in all. Converse has a dedicated site to their City Forests campaign, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes. You should check it out, I think it's actually pretty cool. The primary element and technology at the center of this campaign, the photocatalytic paint with titanium dioxide, is actually a few years old. The titanium dioxide nanoparticles, when exposed to UV light, can oxidize or break down organic compounds in the air. And it's because of this characteristic that these particles have been added to paint products for the purpose of maybe helping to reduce urban air pollution wherever such paint might be used. So you paint a building with photocatalytic paint. Every time that paint is exposed to sunlight, it starts working on breaking down pollutants it comes into contact with. So it sounds easy, doesn't require power, it just works. So we should use it everywhere whenever we can, right? But is it really that simple? It turns out maybe not quite. Here's the thing. While it is a proven thing that titanium dioxide nanoparticles can break down harmful air pollutants and they can make a positive contribution in the fight against air pollution, these particles themselves might actually be harmful in certain situations after a period of time. In a report from 2017, a study by scientists in France and China raised questions about the effectiveness of paints formulated to combat air pollution. While the paints decompose some pollutants, the research also revealed that they also generate and release other toxic compounds. So according to Sasho Gligorvosky and his team from the Chinese Academy of Sciences, they found that photocatalytic paints release significant quantities of nanoparticles and volatile organic compounds or VOCs over their lifetime. So basically, ultraviolet radiation activates the titanium dioxide nanoparticles, which while it activates the process of breaking down air pollutants, it also degrades the organic matrix, their term, of the paint itself, releasing new VOCs into the air. So this means that as the paint ages, 
it releases titanium dioxide nanoparticles too, including other VOCs that are not good. The scientists added that the reactions behind this process create a series of new VOCs and also degrades the surface of the paint, releasing nanoparticles, including formaldehyde, which itself is an irritant and is classed as a cancer-causing substance. He and his group hope to find a way to stop photocatalytic paints from releasing harmful substances by adopting a safer-by-design approach to the manufacturing of these products. They're working with the paint manufacturers to try and get that done. The long and short of it is this. Pollution-reducing paint is here. It's an affordable solution, and it does work. But it also has some downsides to it, especially as time goes by and the paint ages and breaks down in some way. More research is needed in order to figure out how we can keep benefiting from its good effects while minimizing, if not eliminating, the harmful side effects that's been shown to have over time. Well, other researchers have also suggested that more studies need to be done if it's actually a net positive overall in the grand scheme of things. We'll just have to wait and see. Hey folks, just taking a quick break to thank you guys for hanging out with me as usual, and to welcome new listeners from Poland, France, and Tunisia. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you're liking the show so far, or at the very least you're getting something useful out of it. Speaking of useful things, you know we're all about the good stuff here in 750 Mills, and I'm happy to say that this episode is now being brought to you by Love Good Fats. If you like tasty, delicious snack food, but you also want to be healthy, look, you're going to want to hear this. I'm about to tell you, you can have your cake and eat it too, so to speak. Love Good Fats gives you ridiculously delicious and healthy protein bars and shakes in a variety of flavors that are low sugar, low carbohydrate, and keto friendly. I mean, check out these flavors, man. You've got chocolate chip cookie dough, cookies and cream. You got a chewy, nutty, dark chocolate sea salt and almond. Then you have chocolate and vanilla milkshakes. I mean, these are just some of the many different flavors you have to choose from. And remember, these are low sugar, low carbohydrate options that don't skimp on the flavor. Don't take my word for it, though. Love Good Fats gives you award-winning, highly nutritious snacks that have been featured in places like Forbes magazine and Women's Health magazine, using ingredients that are certified, responsibly sourced, and sustainable, and you also have gluten-free and plant-based options as well. So make sure you check out Love Good Fats by visiting their website, www.lovegoodfats.com. I'll put a link to them in this episode's show notes as well. Make sure you use a coupon code 750ML4. You deserve better, healthier treats. So go ahead and check it out. Folks, we often talk about the stuff of science fiction on this podcast and how things sometimes need to be dreamed up in stories by forward-thinking people with vivid imaginations before they become reality. But check this out. Something straight out of a sci-fi that's now very, very real. Researchers from the University of Grenoble Alps in France have developed a mind-controlled robotic exoskeleton that they put to use to help a paralyzed man walk again. The exoskeleton is a bulky-looking white frame that has limbs, joints, and some appendages that parallel its human counterparts, and these align with and sit alongside the outer edges of a person's arms and legs, and then they connect a larger module which rests on the person's back, kind of like a bulky backpack filled with electronics and machinery. 
The module is attached to a harness that keeps it in place on the person, as well as extending upward and overhead, and it's connected to a ceiling-mounted construct that keeps the exoskeleton upright and supports its movement. So the participant the researchers suited up is a quadriplegic man, a former optician that, who goes by the name of Thibault. The report doesn't quite describe the extent of Thibault's paralysis, but quadriplegia, also referred to as tetraplegia if you prefer, by definition means paralysis caused by illness or injury means partial or total loss of use of all four limbs and your torso. It can mean that both your ability to feel and your ability to control these are lost. In any case, you can just imagine what it must be like to lose feeling and control of your arms, your legs, or your torso to any degree. I mean, take away just one thing. What would your life be like if you couldn't walk right now? What things would you all of a sudden need to do but couldn't do without a lot of help and assistance? And how would that make you feel just not being able to sustain yourself without someone to always pick up after you? Well, there are a lot of people in this sort of situation. Some might be in significantly more difficult situations to a more severe degree, unfortunately. But this technology represents the significant potential for helping people like Thibault, who broke his neck several years ago in a fall, and the possibility of helping them restore a certain amount of mobility, freedom, and hopefully self-sufficiency at some point in the future. From being paralyzed to being able to walk again, how does it feel? Here's Thibault in his own words. I felt like the first man on the moon. I hadn't walked for two years. I had forgotten that I used to be taller than a lot of the people in the room. It was very impressive. So how exactly did the whole thing work and what was involved? Well, the researchers needed to implant two brain sensors in Thibault's head that would allow him to control the robotic limbs. These are wireless sensors that are about 5 centimeters in diameter that sit on top of the areas of the brain that control movement just on the brain's outer membrane, one on each side of the head, and they record signals from the brain and send them to the machine. These are obviously very different systems. It's one thing for your mind to control the organic human limbs it was designed to work with from the start, and it's another to get it to learn to work with an external, wearable machine that, in comparison, is a bit more cumbersome and still in its early stages. Thibault had to learn to control the exoskeleton, so before he could learn to walk using the frame itself, the researchers had to put him in a training camp of sorts using virtual simulations to learn how to send the right control signals that would allow him to move limbs in different directions, as well as learning to move limbs not just one at a time, but simultaneously. Things that we instinctively know how to do with the limbs that we're born with, and we may take for granted, but things Thibault had to train and learn how to do with a new and very different set of limbs. Well, eventually, Thibault developed a good grasp of how to work with the exoskeleton through virtual training after some time, and eventually he was able to walk again with the help of the exoskeleton. This technology is still in its early stages and has certain limitations. For example, this version of the exoskeleton can't balance itself yet. It lacks the computational power that it needs to do that. So for now, it relies on the harness to keep it upright as Thibault moves around. And as the technology moves forward over time, better versions of the exoskeleton will undoubtedly be developed, which means people like Thibault 
can do more of the things that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do, along with higher degrees of mobility and freedom. Well, in any case, the researchers have also published a short video that shows Steibolt going through virtual reality training, and they also explain some of the things that he needed to learn to do. And of course, they show him walking with the exoskeleton. So I'm going to put that in the show notes, so make sure that you check it out after listening to this episode. Anyway, that is that, and now it's time for this episode's featured track, something from legendary instrumental rock guitarist Steve Vai, something from an album that was released 30 years ago, a track called Answers. Here's how Steve describes how he came up with the album and what this song represents. He says, I made a record that I wanted to be a statement of my most inner feelings, a blueprint of my personality. So when I wrote or recorded any of the pieces, I wanted to be in the moment. It's hard to explain, and I'm asked about it all the time. And then he goes on to explain that the song Answers represented the emotion of joy. Here's the thing about Answers. Back in 1990, it was a cool little track that anyone could listen to and go, hey, yeah, that's cool. They'd enjoy it, it was good. But now, it's a great track. Steve Vai, legend that he is, is that he doesn't seem to let go of great ideas, musically speaking. So while the version of Answers he recorded back in 1990 was neat, he eventually recorded a version of that same song that he released in 2007 in a performance with the Metropole Orchestra in the Netherlands, and it just blows the original version out of the water. And this one is a featured track for this episode, and it's Office album Sound Theories Volume 1. I'll put direct links to the song for Spotify and Apple Music users in the show notes, but I recommend you watch the video performance of the song that I'll be putting in there where you can watch Steve play with the orchestra. It's good. If you've never watched a group of really talented people who've spent years just like honing their craft and their instrumental abilities playing a really, really good song and just exuding what you can pretty much describe as pure joy while doing it, you need to watch this video. That's it for this episode of 750 Mills. Make sure you head on over to 750ml.fm, check out links to stuff we've talked about there. That includes the feature track and the secret link and everything else that we may have mentioned. You can subscribe and listen to the 750 Mills podcast on podomatic.com. It's also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, and Deezer. Just type in 750ML Podcast in the search box and tap on the follow or the subscribe button. Podcast is also available on YouTube if you prefer it over there. Links to all of that will be in the show notes for this episode as well, which of course you can find on 750ML.fm. There's some extra things in there that you won't get from just the audio version of the podcast. Trust me, that's 750ML.fm. Anyway, folks, thanks for hanging out with me. My name is Andre. This has been the 750 Mills Podcast, and I'll leave you with a thought from Rob Moore, author of the book Start Now, Get Perfect Later. Here's some wise words for you and me to chew on. You do and you learn. You wait and you stagnate. Don't let the desire for perfection get in the way of excellence. Simply making small baby steps of progress. Doing something mostly beats doing nothing. It's never too late to start. But it's always too late to wait. Take care, folks. I'll catch you in the next one.